thank you. It's good to be here with you. I am, uh, I'm really excited actually for this morning um, for a number of reasons. Um, one is just to be here with you this morning. It's, it is a great pleasure. It's uh, like Mark said, I, I primarily serve at the Whittier Hills campus, but to get a chance to come and, and be with you um, is a real treat. And it turns out that I'm not the only one in my family um, who feels that way. So last night I was having dinner and um, we're, I was telling my kids we we're coming here today instead of where we normally go at Whittier Hills. And my oldest, Peyton, she's five, uh, she lets out this huge cheer. She's like, yes! I'm like, oh, you're, you're excited. And she's like, the La Habra campus is like a donut shop. <laughs> so you have won her heart uh, with the donuts. Good job. <laughs> so this morning, um, we are... Um, We're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be um, uh, we're going to be going after the entire chapter of Luke 15. Um, And so, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and and turn to Luke 15. Um, And we are, as you're turning there, going to be diving into this chapter, which, as you'll you might already know, or you'll see soon, uh, that this is perhaps one of the most uh, well-known chapters in, in the New Testament because of the stories or the parables that Jesus is going to give in this chapter. He's going to tell three stories in quick succession, um, a trilogy, if you will. And uh, they have become famous even in the secular world. If you were to leave here uh, and maybe go to lunch afterwards and, and get into a conversation with someone and, and refer to someone else as a prodigal who has come home, they would more than likely understand what you are, are talking about. And so Jesus is going to tell these three stories, the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and then finally the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. And he's going to do them uh, quickly, no transition points, no application points. And, and one thing that I think is very important for us to, to grasp this morning is that I believe the entire key to really truly understanding Luke 15 is found in the first two verses of this chapter. Uh, it's in the first two verses that if we don't, uh, don't stop and understand who it is that Jesus is actually speaking to uh, as he's giving these stories, that we will miss the weight of the words that, that he's saying. And so we're going to spend the majority of kind of the, the front part of our time together really trying to unpack and making sure that we understand uh, what kind of people these words are being spoken to. Um, because I believe that we have really kind of lost some of the weight behind these two verses uh, because of historical and kind of cultural contextualization, as well as, I think, uh, some, some bad children's songs, as we'll see in a second here. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, let's start in Luke chapter 1, or excuse me, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. We'll read that together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So this is one of those verses that, that really gets completely lost, I believe, within the cultural context of, of the text that we're reading. And so what ends up happening is that the real weight and really the hatred uh, that some of these words are infused with gets lost on us. Because we've been told that a tax collector is someone 
someone who stole money from the Jews, which is true. That's correct. And most of us have heard that. And, and we, we have stories and children's songs like Zacchaeus being a, a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. For the Lord he wanted to see, right? And the reason that Zacchaeus was so despised was that he was given permission by Rome to raise taxes uh, for Rome against his, his people. And Rome would say, gather $30, and he would gather 50 and pocket the extra, tr- the extra 20. And, and, and that's not untrue. And we have, many of us, grown up um, hearing that and understanding the issue to be just that. But the reality is that the background goes much, much deeper than that. It goes far beyond uh, $20. It goes far beyond thievery. And, and so at the time that, that uh, in the first century, as Luke is recording these words, Rome uh, is, is ruling over Israel. In fact, the Roman Empire stretched uh, all the way from modern-day England down into India. So try to get your, your head around an empire that massive. And although there are TV shows and, and movies that would depict Rome as kind of this romantic idea, at the end of the day, they were a ruthless ruthless, ruthless people who conquered the world by slaughtering hundreds and thousands of men and women and children. They would walk into a city. They would set up a statue of Caesar who they referred to as God. And the funny thing about calling a man a God is that they end up just continuing to die, but that's neither here nor there. Um, But they would set up this statue and they would say, bow down and worship. And if they wouldn't, they would simply slaughter the entire town. And we have historical accounts of Rome coming into a town where there were 30 or 40,000 men and women and children and and slaughtering them and crucifying them and lining them up on the roads leading to the town and and around the city just to be this spectacle that would say to anyone who passed by, don't mess with Rome. They were ruthless and violent and unbelievably pagan men and women who ruled the world at this point. Now, I want you to, to, to walk with me here because Think about this. How do you police a landmass, an empire of that magnitude without maybe modern kind of quick strike ability? Here's what I mean. Let's say that some of the nutcases up in Silicon Valley, they gain some traction and, and they, uh, they say California needs to cede from the United States, right? Well, if you uh, know anything about history, generally speaking, that's not going to go very well, okay? So in modern times, it's not going to take nine months for troops to march from Washington, D.C. to uh, kind of engage the conflict. There's going to be some guy on a phone somewhere who pushes a button, Apache strike helicopters are going to cut, and it's just not going to be good for us, right? We know that to be true. Well, that is, that's not the case. That wasn't the case in the first century world. It wasn't that easy. So, so for Rome to rule ruthlessly in an empire of that magnitude, uh, how, do you, how do you fund a massive, massive, massive army? Taxes. And so in the first century, tax collectors were Jews who paid Rome for the right to gather taxes. So at this time, 
um, our best understanding, historians will tell us, is that anywhere from 60 to maybe even 90% of a household income went to taxes. So we think we had it bad. Can you imagine that amount of money going to taxes? And, and, so, um, and so to the Jews who believed that God commanded that they would be a nation who were a proud people, who believed that they were supposed to be a light unto the world for a Jewish man to purchase the right to tax them in order order to uh, pay for their very oppressors continuing to oppress and murder and kill their young ones, their fellow countrymen, was unforgivable. Now, I mean, I've racked my brain this week trying to think about, is there a modern-day equivalent to this type of treachery? And I don't know if there is for a family member or a fellow American who would, would betray us on, on that level to raise money for a foreign force that was killing your husbands and your wives and your children, not quickly, but torturing them for days just so that they would be this spectacle. I don't know if we can comprehend that kind of scenario. And so now, with this kind of information, do we understand uh, why the crowd grumbles when Jesus walks through them up to the sycamore tree and says, Zacchaeus, you come down? I mean, do you understand why they gasped at this, why they were enraged at this? Think about the religious man in that crowd whose sister and, hus- and her husband and their children had all been slaughtered two towns over because of men like this who were raising funds for this oppressive army who was oppressing their, their people. I mean, you can imagine why the crowd was furious when Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus and says, for I'm going to your house today. This goes well beyond $20. It goes well beyond these taxes are unbearable. This goes well beyond money. So that is one group of people that is there that day. The second group that we see is a group called sinners. And, and again, we miss the, the weight of what this word is because of our context. Because we've been told that everyone is a sinner Right? And so we think, well, maybe they, you know, they, they drink a little bit too much, or they struggle with pride, or even, even you know, maybe more lost than that, maybe criminals. But at the end of the day, we believe that we are all sinners, and so we miss the reality of what's going on here. Because in the first century, when this is being written, sinners were not everybody. Sinners were a class of people. Um, so sinners were, so we don't have, we don't have again, a direct uh, kind of, correlation uh, in our lives as, you, as Americans. The closest thing that we might have to class classes would be a tax bracket, but we don't really advertise that publicly. But who has been to India before? Anyone spent some time in India? Um, so um, I, I've spent a little time in India, and although the, the caste system in India is officially done away with it, if you've been there, particularly in rural areas, you know that that is deep-seated. So the caste system in India is, uh, is that there are different classes in society, and, and if you are born a beggar or a Dalit, the lowest level, you are born a beggar, you will die a beggar. That's what that means. And there's no hope that you, don't, you can't further yourself with education. You can't save up your pennies and, and get yourself into this different class. Uh, you're done. That's your life. And so one of the things that's so hard to see and, and, and process is that when two beggars get together and have a child, and if that child is healthy, particularly in past history, uh, they would do things like uh, maim the child and, and, and physically harm them 
why. It seems so cruel, and, and this, is the, this is how sin twists things, but, but they do it because there's no hope for this child to be anything but a beggar. They do it to make this child a better what? Beggar. And so that's similar to what we are, are talking about here today, this class system. In the first century, uh, sinners were people who were either um, put in that category because of what they did, how they, how they made a living. So for, to the Jews, there would be uh, uh, professions that were questionable or immoral, uh, like slave traders and prostitutes, certainly tax collectors and, and the like. And then you could also be in that category because of uh, a handicap, a malady, a physical deformity, an accident that, you, that had befallen you. And, and so these sinners, this class of people that we're referring to today are people that are defined by immorality or deformity, sickness, disease, that kind of thing. A class of people who is completely and totally rejected from, from uh, the life of Judaism, who is outside the lines, who's considered unclean. That's who we're dealing with. So again, let's go back to verse 1 and read that with that understanding in mind. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Isn't that unbelievably interesting? That where the true gospel is, that even the tax collectors and the rejects and those outside of society will push close to hear. Religion? No. People have a lot of intrinsic pride. They love religion. It can make much of them. But the real true gospel, even tax collectors and sinners will press close to hear that. Can you get your mind around this crowd? Try to put yourself there if you can. Think of the smells. There had to have been a stench there. Think about how you would feel coming upon a crowd like this. If you were a good Jewish person, you wouldn't want to be in this crowd You wouldn't want your children to be in this crowd. The tax collectors and the sinners pressing close to hear the Son of God. But they're not the only group in this crowd that we see this morning. We have some other buddies here as well. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So here's what's happening. Jesus uh, is not only allowing tax collectors and sinners to come close. I mean, within the framework of first century Judaism, tax collectors, sinners, and the like would have been allowed nowhere near the temple. They were, according to the religious leaders of the time, um, completely and utterly alienated from God. They had no chance of hearing the teachings. They had no chance of hearing Scripture being read. None. And so Jesus not only received them, but they say he eats with them, he dines with them, he rubs shoulders with them. And this is what we talked about with, with men like Zacchaeus, where Jesus says, I'm going to eat at your house. I want to be in your home today. And so the Pharisees and the scribes in the crowd, they begin to grumble, and their grumbling is this accusation. And what, it, what they are saying is that since Jesus receives sinners and since Jesus eats with sinners, Jesus himself is lawless and Jesus himself is unclean. And, and notice that they don't feel the need to explain this statement. They are simply for the benefit of anyone else who happens to be standing around to hear here, they are saying, listen, you've been to temple, right? You know that, that if Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them, they're, that they're making this indictment that Christ himself is like them, 
alienated from God. And therefore, whatever he says, whatever he does, does not have to be listened to, does not have to be obeyed because of who he associates with. He's alienated from God. And so Jesus, hearing this accusation, is going to respond with three stories today. And and by the time that he is through with these three stories, you will completely understand why the religious leaders wanted him dead. So look with me at verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So here's what Jesus is doing. The Pharisees and the scribes believe that the heart of God is separation and ritual purity. They believe it so much so that they are willing to let anybody who steps out of the bounds of of their rule system to just be lost for all of eternity. They would have nothing to do with them because they believe that their association with them would make them unclean as um, themselves. And so Jesus steps in and he says, hey, shame on you. Shame on you. Who would let a sheep die? No, you pursue them. And with a story that everyone in the crowd would have comprehended, Jesus says God's ultimate goal is not ritual purity and separation, but rather finding what is lost, redeeming and repairing what has been broken. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the the one. See, the Pharisees would say, no, that's dumb. Let that one go. They have wandered outside the fence lines. But Jesus says, No, I'm a pursuer of those who wake up one morning and go, how did I get here? What have I done? How can I ever come home? He is a pursuer. And so look at how Jesus finishes this story in verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. So according to Jesus, God's goal is not separation and ritual purity, but finding that which has been lost. And when he finds it and saves it and brings it back home, he celebrates. And there's this massive party. Now, if you want to understand why the Pharisees, the religious leaders, hated Jesus so much, wanted him killed, look at verse 7. Jesus says, Just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What Jesus has done, I mean, you can imagine in that moment, I guarantee you, some very, very upset people, some very, very angry people. I mean, what he has said to all of them is that if one of these tax collectors were to repent, God would rejoice more in that than all of your righteousness, all of your ritual purity. I mean, you don't think that that infuriates them? You don't think that at that moment there was a a thought that was hatched in the mind of some of those men that this man has to die for the things that he is saying? But Jesus doesn't pause even for a moment. He just rolls right into the next story. No transition or anything. Uh, Look at verse 8. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, 
for I have found the coin that I have lost. So here's the picture here. We have a picture of a woman who is who's frantic. She has lost a coin, and it, within the parable, this coin represents probably about one day's salary, okay? So this is not a massive amount of money, okay? This is not the amount of money that you would tear your house apart for, but, but what does this woman do? I mean, she, she has nine left. She's not going to be out on the street if she can't find this one, but what does Jesus say that she does? She, she lights a lamp. She takes her broom out. She sweeps everything, moves the couch out to the front yard, cleans the attic out, has a garage sale. She is willing to do whatever it takes to find this coin. And then similar to the first story, what happens? When she finds it, she gathers her friends and she celebrates the finding of, of this coin. And so just in case any of the Pharisees and the scribes didn't catch it the first time, Jesus is going to repeat himself, similar to the first story. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they were not interested in the repentance of sinners. They, they, they would say they are lost, they are alienated, they get what they deserve. We, on the other hand, are ritually pure. We are, we are upright before God. We have done what is right in the eyes of God. They have failed. God judged them. And God goes, judge them. I'm pursuing them. I'm seeking them. I'm trying to find them. And you, you were meant to be the broom. You were meant to be the light. You were meant to be the seekers of sheep. And what we'll see later is that he, calls, he, he refers to them and calls them anchors. They are weighing his people down. It's quite an indictment. Now, once again, no transition point. Jesus launches right into our third story for today. And this is the more lengthy and more detailed of the three. Specifically, what we will see is the despair of lostness, okay? So remember, keep in mind our two kind of polar opposite members in the crowd. We've got the religious leaders and we've got the sinners. And Jesus is going to speak to both of them in this story. And so let's see how he does that. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So some of you will know exactly what uh, I'm referring to here. Some of you may just have to take my, my word for it. But following Jesus can at times be very difficult because Jesus wants to go after your heart. He will, he will confront what is wicked in your heart. He will, uh, where most of the world simply seeks to, to numb what is in their heart and, their, and in their mind, Uh, the reality of the self-destructive tendencies that we have inside of us, Jesus will ruthlessly force the issue. He wants to talk about what's really there. He he says, "What, what is that there? Let's deal with that. And our response, more often than not, is let's not talk about that, Jesus, but let me give you this instead. Let's just leave this alone. But when we decide 
when we are confronted with the wickedness in our heart, the sin inside of us, instead of letting Jesus deal with it, doing the necessary surgery to purge us from that, to, to draw us closer to him, when we decide to run from God instead, it will always, always feel like freedom at first. Right? When, when our boy goes to this faraway land with his pockets stuffed with money, living this wild party lifestyle, do you think that, that, do you think that it doesn't feel like freedom? It absolutely feels like freedom to him. Right? He, he is not under his father's rules. He is not under his father's uh, authority any longer. I mean, you ever wonder why he went so far away? When we, are, when we begin to be confronted with our sins, whether they be sins of lust or pride or, or alcoholism or, or whatever it is, there will be this time, there will be this moment where it feels like it is just easier to run and it will always feel like freedom for a little while. But look and see what happens to our boy next, verse 14. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. So let's just be really honest with one another this morning. To refuse sonship to Jesus Christ completely guarantees slavery to something else in your life, okay? To refuse sonship to Jesus Christ in your life completely guarantees that you will be a slave to something else in your life. And this happens in many ways, but we just came through the Super Bowl, so I'll give this as an example. I love sports, all right? I grew up playing sports. It was a a big part of my life and in in my family. I like watching sports. Um, I am not the anti-sports guy, but I am blown away by, by some men in particular that I know who know the entire roster of whatever team that they follow. They know the stats of the team. They know the, where these kids went to college. They know where they played their high school ball. They know how many yards they rushed for as a 15-year-old JV guy. They know the life that, that led them to this, uh, this life of sports. They know the strength of schedule and all of these things. But in the, then in the same breath, we'll unpack for you how crazy busy their lives are too busy to creatively love their wives, too busy to unpack the love of Jesus for their their children, too busy for this, too busy for that. You're a slave to the doings of an 18 to 24-year-old boy playing with a ball. And I love sports. I'm waning a little bit. I'm a 49ers fan, so that's destructive and painful at this time. (laughs) <laughs> but, I mean, you know what I mean. It, it, you see it in other things, too. You, I know men and women who have given their lives and sold their soul to their, their boss, and they're unhappy, and they're frustrated with life. They can't sync up with their families. They can't connect with their, their children, but they, they, they're making a lot of money. It's slavery, man. It's slavery. And, you know, we decide to give whatever years that God gives us to all of these things that do not matter and let all of the other stuff that does matter burn away. It's slavery. People who refuse sonship to Jesus Christ will become a slave to something else in their life. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be your career. It could be sports. It could be any other uh, litany of, of things But in the end, you will become a slave to something else in your life if you refuse sonship to Jesus Christ. 
And so let's continue on. Let's see uh, what, what happens with uh, this boy here. Verse 17. <clears throat> but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I love this here because what we're going to see is that the father does not even acknowledge this statement. Notice that the father does not say, yes, you're right. That was very dumb and offensive to me. He doesn't even go there, right? Let's see instead what he does say in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, this is huge. What do you think is happening as Jesus is unpacking this story to this particular crowd? This crowd full of tax collectors and prostitutes and slave traders and the maimed and the physically deformed. What do you think that they are doing and thinking and feeling as this story is being unpacked? Because before it was a coin. And it was a sheep, it's children's stuff. But now it's a man who had wasted all that he had been given. I mean, think about it. They are Jews, God's chosen people, his children. And they took what he gave them and they ran with it. But now Jesus is coming and he is saying that, that the prodigal came home and he was embraced and, and, his, and his rebellion wasn't even addressed, but instead there was a ring put on his finger and a robe put on his shoulders, and there were some steaks thrown on the grill. I mean, can you imagine how incredible that was? I mean, you could see why the tax collectors and the sinners and those who were far from the religious leaders pressed in close to hear this message. And if the story were to just stop there, it would be this beautiful ending, but it keeps going and it gets very tragic. And so let's, let's look together at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So there is this epic celebration that's going on. The, the older son is now leaving the field and walking towards the house. And as he begins to walk towards the house, it says that he hears uh, music and dancing. I don't know how you hear dancing, an electric slide or something, but, but it, apparently it was a rocking party, right? The, the, the celebration is epic, right? But, but um, the, the fatted calf is killed. The wine is flowing. All the servants are invited. Everyone from surrounding areas, it's just it's 
blowing up, right? It's unbelievable celebration. But the older son comes, he peers in, he asks a servant what's going on here. And when told, he is infuriated and he goes outside and he begins pouting, refusing to go in. Now, the father's response is incredible because the father does not go outside and through gritted teeth say, you get inside right now or I will snatch the life out of you, right? He doesn't say that. What does he do instead? He entreats his son to come in. And and is this not what Jesus is currently doing in this story? Is it not the, the, is not the entreating that the father does to the older son exactly what is occurring in Luke 15 as Jesus is unpacking this story of the older brother? It's absolutely what's going on. Look at the response then, though, of the older brother, which points out the absolute tragedy of religion. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Think about what my response would be as a father. Something like, what? In the other room is this epic celebration. I mean, it's monstrous. There is steak. There is wine. Good wine. 88 BC, right? There's laughter. There is joy. It's blowing up. And and you come to me and you say, you never gave me a goat. You want a goat? I mean, you want a goat so that you and your friends can go and celebrate you working in the field like I commanded you. Are you serious? You want a goat? I'm sorry, the music is really loud. Did you say goat or boat? Because a boat is bigger and and better. Maybe a boat. You said goat? That would be my response. But look at the father's response here. He said, and he said to his son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. I mean, how big is that? So they kill the fatted calf, right? The, it was already the brothers, the older brothers' fatted calf. I mean, the wine that they are drinking in this party is from the vineyards that the older brother already owns. Look at the last verse here, verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. My hope for us this morning, no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus Christ, is that the reality of who Jesus is and what he actually came to do lands on us, maybe in a new way, with more clarity. I mean, you think about now these stories that we read about in the Gospels. Think about the woman in John 11 who rushes into where Jesus is dining and and falls at his feet and just begins to weep and wet his feet with her tears and wipe his feet with her hair. Why on earth would anyone ever do that? It's because up until this point, this woman, she is alienated from God. She is exercised from the church. She has no hope of salvation, no hope of restoration, no hope of repentance. And here Jesus is saying, the prodigal, the prodigal is why I came. I mean, we understand now why tax collectors and sinners press in to hear him. Do they press in to hear us? 
that they press in to be a part of, of this. We, we understand why the religious elite were so infuriated with him, with him. Here it is, Luke 15. He's saying to them, this epic celebration, this thing that I am doing with the sinners, with the tax collectors, with any who will press into me, who will, who, who will call on me for the forgiveness of their sins, this party that I am throwing, it's a precursor of what's to come. I'm doing now what will be done on the final day. I am doing now as an example of, of truly what the gospel is all about. Here's the thing about, about this text. I've thought a lot about this over the last number of days. You notice that there's no uh, direct application points. Like sometimes when Jesus preaches or tells a story, he will say, now, now go and do likewise. And other times, maybe when Paul is speaking, he says, as I do these things, you do these things. But there's nothing like that in, in Luke 15. In fact, Jesus is going to take his disciples next. He's going to turn and he's going to just tell them a story. But it's not part of this, this trilogy, if you will. So what is my hope for us here this morning? Because I've got no go and do likewise from, from this text. It's, it's not there. I mean, we can always put application in. We can always say this is what this means for, for the current. But I don't know if that's what we need the most from Luke 15 this morning. Here's what I mean. The way that men and women view Jesus. Actually, I'll say this first. If you are here this morning um, and, and you are not a follower of Jesus, we first want to say welcome to you. We are so glad you're here. And, and so our heart for you this morning, if this is you, would be that maybe you would, you would hear and experience the real Jesus, who he is and what he came to do to seek those who are lost, any who would come and press near to him. And, and so our heart would be that, that God and his spirit would be moving in you. And if any of you want to have a conversation about that after, there are a number of us who would love to talk with you about that. But if you are here this morning at, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, here's, here's the thing. The way that people see Jesus determines the outworking of Jesus in their lives. The, the way that they see him pours out into how they see other people, how they view other people, how they view what we're doing here as a church, what our mission is to the city of La Habra. It changes, uh, it changes everything. It trickles out into every area uh, of our lives. And so if you see Jesus as this kind of Pharisaic master of morality who demands perfection, you will demand that of everyone else around you. <clears throat> and in so doing, I believe that we become the older brother. But if you see Jesus as this man who sees both dirty and unclean people and those who are righteous and those who are far from him and those who have drawn near and everyone in between, you will begin to see people in that same way. See, what I think ends up happening in, when we do things like sing songs about Zacchaeus being a wee little man, we end up feeling sorry for, for him. And, and we need to realize that, that Zacchaeus and his friends that are represented in this crowd today, they were wicked, many of them, evil. I mean, these tax collectors were horrible men who saw their people slaughtered to get rich. And we should not make light of that. Let's not make him pretty. I mean, they deserve to be gutted, truthfully. And, and yet, that's what makes what Jesus does so incredible. When Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm, I'm going to go to your house today. 
The man who is raising taxes to oppress the people that I love. I'm going to go dine with you. That's the beauty of the gospel. And why? Why would Jesus do that? Because there is coming a day when the gospel is unleashed on the world. And that day is now. And Jesus is saying, and I'm pursuing what is lost. I'm taking out the furniture. I'm lighting the lamp. I'm sweeping the floors. I'm leaving the 99. And I'm finding my sheep and my coin, and my prodigal children. And so I I just want us to see Jesus this morning, who he really is, what he really came to do, and allow that to land on us, because I think if we can do that, it will change us. It will change your perspective. It will change the way that you interact with your neighbors. It will change the way that you engage at work. It will change the way that you view what we are called to do here. It'll change the way that you view those who fall into sin. It'll change the way you view yourself when you fall into sin. And my hope is that for however long Jesus has Redemption Hill Church here, that we might be a place in partnering with the Spirit that would light lamps, that would be brutal, rooms that would move couches that would do whatever it takes to reach those who are lost in La Habra and around the world because I think if we don't we become the older brother and so may we seeing and savoring Jesus have the Holy Spirit work in us so that sheep might be found that coins might be gathered that the prodigal may be welcome home here, and may we be the older brother who runs into the party and does not sit outside. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I just thank you for an opportunity to allow your word to land on us. I pray that it would have uh, cut us deeply and that we would be people who do not just hear the word, who do not just come and go through the motions and do church, uh, but we allow the weight of your word to, to change us. God, I pray for the prodigals in this room who maybe at one time ran away thinking that it felt like freedom only to find themselves enslaved. I pray for those of us who tend to be older brothers, I pray that you would convict us, that you would help us to see people the way that you see people. Pray for the lost sheep, the lost coins. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for your spirit that moves and convicts us. We pray uh, that as we go from here that you would do just that. You would change us, you would convict us, that we would be more and more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.